Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast series, Building Trust in Government, a conversation about how leaders in government industry, academia, and nonprofits can work together to create better outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships. Today's conversation is going to focus on biopreparedness, preparing for and responding to future biological threats. My guests today are two very distinguished leaders and experts on this topic, Dr. Julie Gerberding and Dr. Matt Hepburn. Dr. Gerberding is Chief Executive Officer of the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health and former Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she led responses to many crises, including SARS. Dr. Hepburn is Senior Advisor for the Office of Science and Technology Policy, where he leads pandemic preparedness efforts for the White House. He also led vaccine development for Operation Warp Speed. I'm also happy to be joined today by a colleague of mine at MITRE to contribute her expertise to this discussion as well. Dr. Monique Mansour, Executive Director for Global Health Security and Biotechnology at MITRE. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. I know we have a lot to discuss, so let's get started. This is a complex topic, but one that really impacts us all, as we've learned certainly over the past couple of years. COVID clearly exposed a lot of issues and seemed to catch us off guard. Why were we largely unprepared for COVID-19 in 2020? Julie, why don't you take that one first? Well, thank you, first of all, for hosting this conversation. I think the timing is exactly right for us to really be thinking ahead of where we go from here and what was not ready when we first started with this pandemic. Now, if you go up to the 40,000 foot level and think about um, the biggest crisis in my lifetime, which was the 911 crisis and what we learned in the context of that from the 911 commission, there were really four failures, the failure of policy, the failure of capability, the failure of management, and above all, the failure of imagination. I believe that probably the underpinning of our lack of comprehensive preparedness for the current pandemic probably most relates to the lack of imagination. We may have been lulled into the false sense of security, particularly after the 2009 influenza pandemic, that we were ready. We could handle this, really wasn't that bad. And we put our attention in other places and I believe really did experience a diminution in our uh, investment and our concentration on continuous improvement and our preparedness. So we were not ready. Uh, we did not sustain the level of investment and engagement that was necessary to continue to build that preparedness over time. And we were caught off guard in spite of the fact that all the signals have been there for a long time that we were likely to see serious global threats emerging in this wicked environment that we're operating under that really is the perfect storm for emergence of spillover and expansion of bio threats. So that's the broad context, I think, for how we landed when this uh, deadly virus emerged. Okay, that's, that, that's, that's pretty clear. Matt, anything you'd like to add to that? No, I would. I just want to start by thanking MITRE for participating in this conversation today and also uh, thrilled to, to share the stage with Julie, who's always been one of my public health heroes for many years. And um, I think we're off to a really good start and, and really agree with, with what she said. This, you know, it is, I think we should acknowledge that the COVID pandemic has been awful and terrible and personally 
so devastating. Um, and it's been really, really hard to deal with and that we, we've we been confronted with a enormously contagious and sometimes lethal virus. Um, and that virus keeps changing. And with that on a global scale, um, that if, if we, uh, I think we should take a half step back and appreciate the no enormous challenge that this virus continues to present us. Um, Having said that, uh, I think we would all agree, I wish we had done better. Um, and I, I also, though, think it's very constructive for us to say, what, have, what are we learning in real time now? And what are we changing and adapting in all humility in real time now so that we can do better um, against COVID today, tomorrow, next week, and then also use that to prepare? Um, and I think the fundamental lesson that Julie already highlighted is this idea that we should prepare to be surprised that the, the the baseball analogies we're going to keep you know they're gonna, we're going to get a couple fastballs and we're going to get a curveball and we're going to get a slider and you know we're going to get more curveballs and so i think the best way to prepare to be surprised is to try to have capability it's our government jargon term so sorry but try to have capability um in a lot of different areas so that when the we, we have to assume the future threat is not going to be like covid and if it's not are we going to be able to pivot be flexible um to go to we have a lot of different tools in the toolbox for those future threats and so that's how we're thinking about the future I, you know, I could bring that back to earth a little bit also just from some of the things that I specifically have learned since my time in government. One of them is that we for many years have been planning for a health crisis, a pandemic, but we were planning it as if it were a health emergency and probably not thinking enough about the fact that it's also an economic crisis and a social crisis. So our preparedness tends to be very much in the medical and public health model, but I think we've learned now that we have to have a whole of government engagement because there are all of these other requirements. We can't possibly expect people to sustain non-pharmacologic interventions if they don't have a family income and can't feed and pay the rent. So we've got to think broadly about what bio-preparedness really means in the context of, of a threat. I think another thing that I've learned is that um, success is end to end, and we can have all the countermeasures in the freezer and do everything to get them developed and even authorized. But if we don't have trust in their utilization, it is not really possible that we're going to achieve the end state that we're aiming for. And that trust doesn't start once the crisis has occurred. That's the worst time to try to build trust. We need to do that long before we get to the stage where we're actually experiencing an event. We need to build that community engagement and understanding, but we also need to engage the political trust and understanding so that not just our federal government, but that our state and local uh, decision makers are fully familiar and prepared for what they need to do to protect their populations. So I think, Julie, you've touched on some important actions. Um, the administration just released the first annual progress report on implementation of the prepare pandemic preparedness plan. So what are some of the critical activities needed to be better prepared and build public confidence and trust, as you've mentioned? Matt, why don't you take that one? Yeah, absolutely. So we had, I arrived at OSTP last October and at that time, one month before the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan had been released. Um, and, and, and my mission here was to 
take that and make sure we were moving out and, and doing doing what we could, um, doing as, as much towards future pandemic preparedness. Um, we just released the annual, the first annual progress report on that. Um, I want to highlight a couple things. The first is uh, we really have tried to capture what we said in our first point, um, lessons learned from this pandemic the idea of being flexible and the idea of preparing for the future and thinking broadly accordingly. And to make that, as, as Julie eloquently highlighted, really a whole of society, whole of government um, response. As we, you know, the economics and everything else that, that she mentioned, hopefully is, is taken account in that annual progress report. And uh, the other point to highlight, what I really like about it, frankly, is that it's public. And that was very deliberate. And we made that public for number one because we believe in transparency in government. Um, I think that's that's a key theme, and that's something that you'll hear from our Office of Science and Technology Policy throughout all of our initiatives in terms of open open science, open government, transparency. Um, in that transparency, even more, I like the idea of this being a bi-directional conversation so that pandemic preparedness isn't the government saying, here's what we're doing, here's what we should do. The government is saying, here's what we're doing right now. Here are our goals next year. Let's talk. And this is one way we're getting the message out, but we welcome conversations with these communities. Um, and, and our intent is to continue that dialogue. You know, Matt, when I when I read the report, I was surprised by how much has been done and congratulations yeah. for what's been going on. And I'm not saying that in a political sense. I'm saying it because there are things happening that I had no idea had even been started in some really clever and innovative uh, dimensions in, in, in a whole of government framework. So I, I was very in a sense, relieved to see how much was going on. Not that there isn't a lot more to do and we can talk about that, but I, I do just want to thank you for such a great effort. It really is remarkable. Well, that kind of made my week. <laughs> that's great. I mean, coming from Julie, that's obviously a big deal, but also that was the intent. That was the full intent was we, we really tried, we reached across the government and said, look, tell us what you're doing. Tell us about progress and be willing to make it public. Um, not only to tell people the, if you will, that, that we do care, we're doing things, but also that we should be held accountable for those things too. And so the, the intent of an annual report and an ongoing dialogue is that this is also a way for people to say, okay, hey, last year you mentioned that program, how are we doing this year? Um, a couple other things that are, if you will, I'm getting a lot of, well, how's that different though? Um, and uh, I wanted to highlight two quick things. The, the first is, as we look towards next year, what we've, we, we've imagined, I guess I would say broadly, the, the goal here is that the United States government doesn't have all the answers and solve all the problems. I think a good illustration of that is in the diagnostic space, but imagine this broadly in terms of all the different important things that we have to do in pandemic preparedness. Um, what I think we have traditionally done as we develop a diagnostic test and say this is important is we have initial investment from, uh, we do basic science research, which are invested across a ton of different departments and agencies and programs and small business grants and everything else. Um, but then we have a totally different group that's looking at the advanced development. Uh, very few groups think about the manufacturing. We don't have very many programs to bring that pro that product all the way through and in partnership to market. And then once it gets to market, that's a whole different part of government. And that part of government doesn't seem to talk through the other parts of government at all. I think if you can imagine 
through that end to end. And it was exact, Julie, you really teed up this well when we think about the end to end process. Um, if we could be integrated as a government to support that start to finish process, it would be magical. And it's really, really hard to do because of stovepipes and bureaucracy and budgets and everything else. But it's our job as, as government civilian servants to the people um, to make that happen. If I can illustrate a final point along there, um, and it's really to Julie's point again, you know, it's great if we had a, a next generation diagnostic test, we're seeing home diagnostic tests now. But the idea of those diagnostic tests being able to be to benefit all people, to benefit everyone, really takes, if you will, keeping the end user in mind and keeping how how all communities are going to view it and use it and how it's going to be applied in those types of environments, especially to reach out to people who uh, we haven't been reaching out to. So if we imagine building that into the early product development of a diagnostic test and we don't do that as well as we should right now, but we're going to. And that's what I really wanted to emphasize. That's hopefully comes across as an emphasis, not just in our annual progress report, but in the work that we're doing every day. So I want to come back in a, in a few minutes to some of those points, especially around innovation and some of the partnerships. But before we leave this topic, Monique, you've led countermeasure programs, both in the public sector and private sector. Is there anything that you'd like to add to this conversation around these actions in this report? Um, there is, Jim, and I'd first like to acknowledge what a privilege it is for me to be a part of this discussion with two of my heroes and Julie and Matt, uh, such accomplished and admired leaders um, in global health security. So um, it, it is a great privilege. Uh, I wanna amplify a couple of things that both Matt and Julie have been touching on. Um, I think one is this sense of what are we learning from prior events? As Julie mentioned, we really stood up this program after 9-11 and the anthrax attack. So we've got 20 plus years of experience. And the question is, what are we learning from you know, the outbreak of SARS in 2002 or MERS in 2012? Are we learning the right lessons? And, and how are we holding ourselves accountable in imagining the future events, which again, we can't predict, but we have to prepare for. Um, I think meaningful measures and what we, you know, I'm really inspired and again, congratulations to Matt and the team for the progress report, not only in its transparency, but the comprehensive nature, as Julie mentioned, of all that's being done and how do we put all those pieces together in a meaningful way. Um, biological threats are very different than nuclear threats in that we need every person on the planet, arguably, to make an individual decision about will they get tested, will they wear a mask, will they get vaccinated. Very different than what we would expect sort of from uh, government leadership and nuclear threats. Each individual has a significant, they're part of the response plan and, and leading with that and thinking with that end in mind and what goods and services do we provide to them um, to enable them to build their individual bio shields and have the information to make informed decisions. So test and evaluation is a way to do that. Matt, you have championed that. It is, it's, it comes out loud and clear in the document. Uh, MITRE similarly in our 10 point action plan for sustaining a, a bio preparedness industrial base really believes that unless we practice, um, we can't expect to be ready for the big event. So um, testing and evaluation, we really like that utilizing current events um, in infectious diseases or other ones in global health to test um, all elements of that end-to-end -end system that both Julie and, uh, and Matt talked about so powerfully. 
Yeah. And if I could just chime in and say thank you on the test and evaluation piece. And I think that that resonates very deeply. And I think um, in, inspired by your your uh, writing and your uh, public comments on that. And it's exactly what we want to do. Um, I will ask you and your community and, and those that are interested to figure out how we do that um, in the next year. And I think you, you really alluded to this idea of that's important to us, which is we're working on COVID. We need to continue to work on COVID. We have other health threats. We have also, you know, infectious diseases that are with us and still with us and that we need to do more work on as well. All of those different scenarios, and influenza is a good example, antimicrobial resistance. We have a list in the, in the plan where we talk about those things. And what we hope to do is say, okay, let's go after some of those in, in the various different government efforts and private sector and everything else. But let's go after, um, let's say seasonal influenza and say, what, what kind of metrics can we set for the next one to two to three to four influenza seasons and really put focused effort on doing better um, as we respond to seasonal influenza. Um, and it's, it, that sounds great, but actual, those like actual, like how do you measure it and how do you show that you do better and what are you aiming for requires so much thought. And, you know, you choose the wrong metrics, you're gonna get the wrong, you're gonna, you're gonna achieve a goal, it's gonna be the wrong goal, you know? Um, but, but certainly welcome the dialogue with you in the community in terms of what's the best test and evaluation that we can do to show we're making progress. So let's talk about innovation. What are some of the opportunities you see for greater innovation to address some of these actions? Matt, why don't we start with you? Uh, I think the silver, one of the silver linings of this pandemic has been just a massive acceleration in certain areas. And the goal is to continue to capitalize on that. Um, uh, and it can be, it can be transformative for pandemic preparedness, but also health in general. I think RNA vaccines are a great uh, case in point. I think home diagnostic testing is another uh, case in point. Um, both of those innovations are not only the scientific progress, but it's also the ability to achieve scale manufacturing in a relatively short period of time. Um, I uh, we're really emphasizing then how to you how can we further innovate in manufacturing so that you can make more doses of vaccine in half the time, always maintaining the highest quality, um, but also be able to do that in a very distributed fashion. So not necessarily the big manufacturing plant of the past, but in a much smaller footprint um, in the future. Oh, interesting. Julie? Well, you know, I can pick up where Matt kind of left off because he's got the products made now in a fast and agile way, but we've got to develop them through the clinical trial process, the regulatory harmonization efforts and get them out and in the arms or mouths of people who need them. So um, one of the things I think went well in this pandemic was the way the scientific community came together and built these incredible research collaboratories one that I'm familiar with through FNIH is, of course, Active, which um, started out screening more than 800 compounds, found 29 that looked promising and went into the master protocols. And so far, six products have come out of that, uh, proven to have clinical relevance. That couldn't have happened without an enormous amount of effort. But what worries me about it is that I don't know that that effort is going to be sustained. We do not want to have to reinvent this the next time we need it. So we're going to have to figure out how to invest in innovative ways to keep these clinical trial networks and capabilities warm. We need governance, we need investment, and we need to find ways to repurpose them for antibiotic resistance or other less serious infectious diseases as they emerge. 
So what role does policy help in, 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 in addressing some of those needs? You know, we're in a situation right now where everyone wants to put this pandemic in the rear view mirror. And yet, as of today, some 400 people are dying of SARS-CoV-2. So um, we're not programmed to maintain a flight or fight response chronically. We can only do this for a certain period of time. So given human nature, we have to do other things to sustain the effort. One of them is accountable leadership, and Matt's already mentioned that in the context of the AP3. But we also need investment, long-term, sustainable, not one-year investment, but long-term investment commensurate with the threat that we're facing in the same way that the Department of Defense can invest over the long arc of time to build a defense capability. And then lastly, I think we, we absolutely must have the underpinnings of a long-term uh, biosecurity policy framework that is whole of government, but also transnational. And that leads to ideas like the pandemic treaty or other global commitments necessary to make sure that the small world works together. Matt. How about you from a policy perspective? Uh, 100% agree uh, with, with what Julie was saying. And I think it is, um, I'm, I'm particularly glad that she ha highlighted the idea of global cooperation and that being a, that, that uh, the global pandemic requires a global response and especially the commitment to multilateralism. And I think we've seen that a lot in recent administration actions. And I think that is, um, to link that with the innovation idea. We we should be innovating not just for the American, not just for the pandemic response for Americans, we should be innovating for a pandemic response for all. And as we talk about equity, and you've heard us mention that, that we should be aiming to protecting everyone. When we say everyone, it's it's all it's all Americans, but it's really all the globe. And we keep we should keep that in mind in every policy action we take. That's a great point. Monique, I'm going to give you the final word, given your experience and your work on biopreparedness at MITRE. What are some of the policy points that you'd like to raise to add to the discussion? Again, completely aligned with uh, Julie and Matt, I want to amplify this challenge and opportunity and criticality of managing the mission, pillar five of the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan. Um, having strong and effective governance um, across the interagency and the broader global ecosystem that uh, Julie referenced, um, and having accountability and building trust through the transparency, through performance, and through meaningful engagement. Um, again, always with an equitable and uh, a lens of equity. Um, so this holds true for both the administration, for Congress, for all of us, um, that beyond these aspirational and, and clarity with policies that we see with AP3 um, and ensuring we have resources, that we have innovation in business practices, as Matt alluded to with Barta Ventures, um, innovation in financing and business practices is critical. Um, I think that will strengthen the mission of protecting uh, the American population, um, recognizing its inherently global nature of these biological threats and the and the partners uh, that we will need to be successful. This has been a really great discussion today. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Julie Gerberding from the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Matt Hepburn with the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and Dr. Monique Mansoura from MITRE. Thank you all for joining us today to talk about this critical topic, being prepared for and responding to future biological threats. And thank you all for your leadership on these issues. I invite our listeners to join us each month 
We have upcoming episodes on the federal workforce and the national defense strategy. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News Network. Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org slash policy center.